And welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry, where we have the pleasure of showcasing people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and my guest today in the studio is a Colombian that you might know by name, Paul Sturtz. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Dick. Welcome back to Columbia after being out in the road a bit. No, it's a it's an honor. I, I have to say, you, you probably don't mention this every show, but your history at the station has always inspired me. When I first found out about you, I wanted to meet you because the story was there was this guy who uh, came back to town and 1973 or thereabouts and had a sleeping bag and and would camp out uh somewhere on the on the carpet um outside the studio here and i thought that's that's a that's a great origin story (laughs) well thank you paul uh that is a little bit legendary right there actually i was i was don't let the facts get in the way in in 71 before the studio was here okay uh even before uh mark heim uh uh, back then, his name was another. Yeah, one. and uh, started the Columbia Grocery uh, Community Grocery in the front. So mm. it was, uh, yeah, interesting little details back there. Then. So but, how how long were you in your sleeping bag? Is what I want to know. Well, I was, I was. Uh, what do you call it when you move around a lot? <laughs> itinerant. Uh, that, that's the word I was looking for. I was itinerant. And so uh, I was in the sleeping bag maybe, uh, oh, six months, nine months. And would people point at you when they'd come in? No, the... no. I was in that front office area. Oh, yeah. that's, that's very good kind real estate out of up the there. Way. Okay. But as soon as the, cl- the community grocery came in, I had to leave my room. Oh, you got, room you got, you got evicted. I moved, I moved back into the big room that wasn't being used. Okay. And had a little corner in the big room, and so I, I sort of got moved out very organically. Okay, it, it was an organic move. <laughs> you were there wasn't any sort of like Maoist uh, food co-op people who like you know threatened. threatened oh, no, we were. Th- this was a, a great place. And still is. Well, we, we on the next show, we need to get into more detail about it. Well, all yes. Uh, and when when do I get to be on your show again? <laughs> oh, speaking of your show, I know you I used do. to have a show here. Well, yeah. I mean, I started Holy Victrola, and, and as I was saying, I think it's been brought to higher heights since I left. But uh, I am proud of the name because I do. That did come to me in a, in a vision, the, those two words, uh, mm-hmm. just like uh, ragtag cinema came to me at some point so yeah. i'm glad the show's still going yeah both oh yeah yeah <laughs> ragtag cinema yeah that was is that after holy victrola um it sort of was similar times I, i'm trying to remember when holy victrola was happening i think it was somewhere around yeah somewhere around the same time around mm-hmm. 1998 99 oh, somewhere in there okay so that's that's had a good good long run yeah uh, you asked a question once uh, in uh, when Ragtag was up here on 10th Street. Yeah, yeah. About uh, who is a Canadian 
that, uh, or, or where's Leonard Cohen from, or vice versa. And I was the only one in the room that oh, raised my that hand. Oh, that was you. And I <laughs> That's the first time we talked. Oh, I'm glad you're bringing that back up. <laughs> and then uh, we probably, you said, met at Main Squeeze somewhere yeah, along the line. Yeah, you knew my daughter a little right, bit. Right, Alethea Dalton, who's yeah. uh, also an outstanding counselor living in uh, Portland. And uh, worked for Ragtag. Yeah. Uh, or no, no, for True False. Yes, Alethea's history is woven in uh, with, with True False and... Uh, Many other great institutions like the Blue Note. A lot of people remember Alethea in a in a very fond way. Oh, good. She was uh, she was our first uh, venue captain at the Blue Note way back when when uh, the film festival when True Fall started in two thousand four through two thousand six or so. Venue captain. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The person in in charge. Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty good job. You didn't know this about her. Well, I knew she had a, an important role. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, but it's then, great. She's following in your footsteps as a counselor. That's very and that moved on out to Portland and yeah, yeah, doing well. Going to see her next week. All right, very good. I'll uh, say hi. Yeah, well, please do. She's probably listening <laughs> right now. All right, lots of tipping of hats happening in the in the studio right now. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what do you what would you like to talk about today, Paul? Well, I just thought, it'd, you know, we should just have a normal conversation, you know, and not, uh, we don't need to put on radio voices or okay, well, they put head, on any airs here. The headphones that you're wearing just, you know, they kind of throw... I go, I go through life like that, so it's, I, I haven't shifted one bit. So, you're uh, off on the road now more than you've ever been? Is that well, no, I mean, I think... Uh, I've gotten to know the state of Iowa way more than I ever have in my entire life, all 55 years. Uh, I know a lot of the back roads quite well now. And uh, Do they have as many hog farms as we hear? Um, it's not even close. They, I think they have something more than 3,000 CAFOs confined animal feeding operations, um, those big nasty factories where they, where they grow hogs. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess bringing it local, um, folks who are concerned about uh, Missouri becoming Iowa um, mm -hmm. should be uh, agitating uh, their their legislators right now. I'm trying to remember the, the deadline on uh, legislation going through on a local basis, the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, which, I, which was my first job uh, when I moved to town. Uh, they'll have all the details on that. Um, you well, know, I went to one of the hearings hearings on that down at the legislature mm -hmm. and i got the impression that uh, they've already passed the law but it doesn't go into effect until maybe september 1st yeah i mean the law the law the state law is basically taking away from local control which right. was something this this move that just happened is what we were fighting at the missouri rural crisis center right. for you know 20 plus years um and it's it's very ironic and and hypocritical um that the republican-led legislature is against local control because i i thought you know in my naive <laughs> way that that's what something that uh, republicans were in favor of was the idea of local control but evidently not um they don't want uh these mega large corporations like premium standard farms and uh murphy family Farm, all these 
misnamed uh, <laughs> companies. They don't want uh, anything to be in the way of them putting up, uh, you know, a barn with 5,000 hogs in them uh, that are... Mm-hmm fouling the waters and uh, the groundwater and the creeks and uh, the air. You know, when you're up in Iowa, you'll just get on a country road and you're like, what was that? Like, that's mm-hmm. a that's an overwhelming stench. Yeah. And then, you know, lo and behold, you'll see it right away. These these mega large, you know, metal metal barns with the, the big fans on the side. And you know exactly what's going on in there. They're, they've packed they've packed the hogs in very tight. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're pooping everywhere. Yeah. Um, not to get too explicit, but well, the Cole County commissioners mm-hmm. met yesterday, and I believe the group that you just Missouri re- Rural Crisis Center, yeah, were there to talk to them because if a county can pass their own laws before it takes effect September 1st then they have a little bit of wiggle room yeah there's not much time at all no Um, not much time so I I I think Missouri even though we think we have a fair amount of these these hog factories you know I think it's just a few hundred ultimately around the state um, as opposed to three three thousand plus in Iowa and and once these companies see that it's you know open season and that there's no no way that any of these local municipalities or counties can control them they'll do exactly what they wish which mm-hmm. tends to be the lowest cost option putting very few safeguards in place to not externalize their costs as they say in economics mm-hmm. and how's your level of hope in this area <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's very hard, honestly. I, I think anyone listening in uh, Missouri can't have too too many hopes about our political situation down in Jeff City. You know, I think it's, you know, a lot of those people are bought and paid for. You know, I when I used to work for the Missouri Rural Crisis Center back uh, between 1995 and 98, you'd go down there and you'd you'd talk to legislators from from all. Wow, that's a that's an interesting folio effect you've got there, Dick. Yes, it's dumpster time. Dumpst- oh, that's that's your dumpster effect. Very nice. So, you go talk to these folks. Like I remember Sam Graves, uh, who's risen in power as a senator from Tarkio, Missouri, and you you talk to them about you know these are not real family farmers. These are mm-hmm. these are folks who are have capital to the hilt, you know, and if you know, invested millions of dollars in these facilities that they shouldn't be treated like, uh, you know, mom and pop family farm, you know, with a few few hundred chickens and 50 hogs. But they, they use they use the front, the shield of this is for family farmers. And how can you be against family farmers uh, when they're really, you know, doing the bidding of companies like premium standard farms that uh, have very little local connection and you know i think i think the connection between missouri and iowa i was just telling some friends is that sort of the most insidious i mean i mean it's hard to say more insidious than uh, our creeks and groundwater being polluted but up there is the devastation of local economies you know we used to be able to have farms that would employ, you know, a fair amount of folks, and then that would have a spillover effect in the the local towns. You know, the downtowns would, you'd have the farmers come in there and, and buy 
buy their hardware or their groceries or whatever it would be. And so there'd be this little beautiful economic cycle where the money was kept kept in the towns. And when now when you go up to Iowa, there, there's gorgeous, gorgeous town squares. I think, you know, there, there was a lot of money in Iowa. Iowa, Iowa was Eden, basically. I mean, the soil there is considered to be the best in the world. And wow. there's, that's why it was picked. Um, all these refugees from, you know, Vermont and upstate New York who were dealing with uh, rocky soils, you know, hightailed it out to much more promising ground and, you know, saw this loamy soil that went down many feet uh, that had developed over, you know, millions of years. And uh, pretty much everything would grow and they had a much better life. It's it's unfortunate that this fantastic ground has been planted, you know, fence row to fence row with corn and soybeans uh, for the commodity market. So, you know, 90 some odd percent of it gets fed to those hogs and mm-hmm. or to our cars yeah the ethanol yeah. <laughs> this is probably not how you thought this interview would go but um yeah ethanol is is really a sham you know for mm-hmm. every calorie of you know energy you get out of uh, uh, a gallon of ethanol you've put in 1.2 calories so it's it's uh not a it's a losing battle losing battle would be the right right word so and it also decreases the efficiency of your car so you get fewer miles per gallon yeah and it's it's a quirk of our political system well i think my uh my wife corrected me on that it's uh was probably a plan to make uh, <laughs> Iowa much, much too influential in our political process with the Iowa caucus coming on February mm-hmm. 3rd. And, you know, so candidates have to go to Iowa and pander like crazy and say mm-hmm. they love ethanol and, uh, you know, that they're all for keeping things the way uh, they are. Are they all for CAFOs? I don't, I don't know how many candidates have come out clearly against CAFOs. I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have come up with economic plans that preference family farms. But it's real real family farms. Real family farms. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's it's uh, sort of a third rail of American politics mm-hmm. that it's it's really hard to do the real talk up in Iowa and tell tell folks uh, what they need to hear. But you know, I I think that reality will will start to Dawn in in Iowa, and uh, <clears throat> you know I think Elizabeth Warren has come up with a very proactive plan for supplying low cost internet all across the state, so that you know folks in some of these small towns can be connected to the world and uh, have businesses that will restore small town economies. Because a lot of the economies up there have been devastated as, as they have all across rural Missouri. It's, it's not, I guess to go back to your original question of am, am I hopeful as a Missourian, it's hard to, hard to see too much, too much of that right now. But I, I think there is an increasing awareness of what we're dealing with, with consolidation and the ways in which we could turn that around. Um, so I think there's two there's two different X and Y axes that are uh, working right now, yeah. and, and hopefully we can we can restore local economies before they're completely devastated. Are the candidates that you have come across up there aware of the vast number of immigrants that are farm workers 
in Iowa, and many of them undocumented immigrants, but no one wants to talk about it because that's another way that all of their economy works. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not at all a secret. When you go up there, you'll you'll find the uh, you know Mexican tiendas and uh, and uh, taco shacks and um, passport and check cashing spots um, that are in Spanish. And I think anyone <laughs> with eyes understands that the economy would collapse without immigrants up there. Those are talking points used by the Republicans to scare scare old people that, uh, you know, there's going to be all these criminals coming off the border, coming across the border, when the reality is that everything would collapse mm-hmm. without the immigrants uh, doing these jobs, which yep. are oftentimes nasty, smelly, backbreaking, very low-paid mm-hmm. jobs. Somebody's um, got to work on those hog farms. Yeah. So I think that it's... <laughs> It's very disingenuous for anyone to not know that uh, when you're up there because it's it's not hidden in any way. If if you're in Des Moines, for instance, even in the city, on uh, on Saturday I went to the Iowa State Fair, which is a cultural experience that I I saw you on TV, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, that was me. Um, no, I mean it's a cultural experience that everybody should experience maybe exactly once and not not anymore. But sorry, sorry, Iowans, but. You know, if you if you bike as I did between downtown where the the uh, the state capital is, you know it's incredibly thriving downtown right now um, in Des Moines. They've had a real transformation over the last twenty years or so. But if you go down Grand Avenue between downtown and, and the Capitol, the Gold Dome Capitol, and the fairgrounds, which is a two mile street, you will go by one. Mexican or Central American oriented business after the other. Oh, it's it's extraordinary. It's seemingly a, a thriving commercial district. Mm-hmm. Um, so that got me thinking. You know what what jobs are folks doing in Des Moines? So it's you know even in a lily white state like Iowa, I think it's extremely dependent on on immigrants from the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as other places in the U.S. are, and uh, we just don't like to talk how interdependent we are. Yeah, I mean, there have been various various efforts, like, uh, I forget what it was called, it was like the day the day without migrants, you know, where, where all the folks who are, you know, housekeepers or uh, landscapers or swimming pool cleaners didn't mm-hmm. show up for their job you know i mean it, very they, clearly mm-hmm. everything would shut down yeah dairy farm workers and yeah every, yeah yeah that's it's almost too obvious to point out but that's that's the case well i'm sure some of your documentaries at uh, the true false film festival have tried to point out things like that is that yeah i mean i, th- I think you know i think very very proud of um you know, showcasing documentaries, and uh, you know, I think True False has done a really good job in putting you know a certain kind of creative nonfiction on the map. Um, you know, definitely part of a larger ecosystem of of uh, folks who are interested in in documentary evolving in a in a creative way. You know, there's there are just inherent limitations to 
art, I would say. You know, I think converting awareness into action by a wide swath of active folks, you know, there's there's a little bit of a gap there. You know, what it, what does it take from reading a book about racist ideas, for instance, and, and having an awareness of what's propelled this country for the last, you know, 250 or, well, more like 350 years, if you're going back to colonial times, to, like, becoming an anti-racist warrior. You know, what? where does, where does it flip mm-hmm. from from knowledge into activation. I'm not quite sure. You know, I think in my case, you know, I feel like I've been been on the sidelines to a certain extent. You know, I feel really proud of being part of this local business that that's employed uh, a fair amount of people, whether you're talking about the Ragtag Cinema or True False Film Festival, and being part of this larger world of nonfiction filmmakers and, and others who, who support them. But, you know, there, there's something inside of me that feels like, just for myself at this time and place, that it's not quite enough, you know, and that might just be a reflection of a certain foolhardy restlessness that I've always been afflicted with. But, um, <laughs> yeah, after, you know, 22 years of showing movies and, and putting on events and, and all that, I felt compelled, oh, I guess it's been about three, three or four weeks ago when I was on some country road in Iowa to say, you know what, I, I really do need to get involved a little bit more um, directly in politics. I think politics has a bad word, and maybe that's, uh, maybe you could say that's because elites in the society who have power um, want to want the rest of us to be turned off to politics and think it's a messy and corrupt system so that they don't get involved. So I'm, I'm just trying to blast through all of my skepticism right now and say, you know what, I'm just going to go door to door in Iowa in mm-hmm. these small towns and knock on people's doors. And mm-hmm. at some point I'll figure out <clears throat> what that adds, adds up to be. But right now I'm just, just sort of uh, going step by step. Yeah. Well, let's uh, take a break. Yeah. And uh, Dennis will tell us something important that we need to know, and then we'll come back to more local news and social artistry with Paul Sturtz and uh, explore more what's in that mind of yours. Welcome back to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and my guest today is Paul Sturtz from Columbia. And Paul, you've been telling about uh, a new, somewhat new foray into active politics, but you were in politics here, right? You were part of the city council, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I, I did dabble. Um, I'm a dabbler, I guess. <laughs> And that's why it's so strange that I've been essentially doing the same thing for 22 years. I like, I like to <laughs> do lots of different things. So yeah, back in uh, what year was that? I really should know this off the top of my head. But back in about ten years ago, or yeah, so. yeah. So 
between 2008 and 2011, I was the first ward representative on the city council here in Columbia, Missouri. And, uh, you know, prior to that, I was part of a very shadowy group. Maybe it's never even been revealed online. Shadowy group. Oh, I'm yeah, all ears. Very shadowy. Um, <laughs> it was called the Key Lime Group because I think one of the one of these organizers uh, like to make a key, key lime pie each time we would meet in the shadows. Um, you know, and the goal was to flip the the city council. You know, I think that uh, you know at the time there were there was a very very pro-development bias um you know there was i'm trying to remember the name of that group it was like the central missouri development council and uh you know mm. the billy sap and uh donnie stamper basically were very well financed uh lobby in favor of more roads and more sewers and not having any development fees for developers mm. um so the idea was you know we were gonna put a number of people on council who weren't weren't uh, as easily um, influenced by that and to a certain degree we were we were successful for for a bit not not nearly as successful as you as you can see by going outside of the KOPN studio right now <laughs> um, you mean so, that the development that we see now in downtown Columbia came right after you left <laughs> well no i mean it's it started to happen when when i was when i was on council you know i think i have a lot of misgivings about it i mean i think i think to a certain extent and this is very controversial like 90 percent of my friends will will hate me for saying this but i do i do think there was a need to create more density downtown you either are in favor of more density downtown or you're more in favor of sprawling and, and mm -hmm. using up all the farm land and all the environmentally sensitive lands that mm -hmm. surround Columbia and Boone County and elsewhere. How how that density was achieved in Columbia was not done with a lot of grace and style. Um, I can't really endorse most of the buildings that went up. But they're, they're sort of like, I think a miss oh misappraisal of the idea that we should we should have just kept Columbia the way it was in 1995 you know when i arrived in town um in july of 1995 it wasn't like exactly like there were tumbleweeds going down the on 9th street but mm. it was pretty pretty sleepy mm. you know there were, 1985 as you you can remember the Columbia Mall opened up. Mm -hmm. And so between 1985 and around 1990 uh, or 1991, there was very little activity downtown, lots of shuttered um, storefronts. Then, you know, some cafes started to appear like Cafe Arno and, um, you know, and then later um, Coffee Zone and uh, Lakota, you know, around 90, 91. And then, uh, you know, over time, it got a little bit healthier. And, you know, I think when we started Ragtag as a film society at the Blue Note in 1998, that was very much on our minds. Like, how do we be part of this revival of a downtown, get mm -hmm. people to walk and to run into each other and sort of help rebuild this, this civic culture um, mm -hmm. so that uh, we could 
reverse this this trend towards isolation and people not coming together. So the the Film Society, you know, is really fortunate we were able to get Richard King from the Blue Note to let us use use his space a couple times a week in 1998 and 1999 into early 2000. And that that sort of incubated what became the cinema when Mm. we moved over to 10th Street. And, you know, it led to you answering the Leonard Cohn question (laughs) that we'll we'll always remember. Uh, So about about Leonard being Canadian. Um, So the question was that, yeah, the development of of downtown, you know, I think, yeah, the Odals. The Odal brothers, uh, you know, were sort of the pioneers, and they, they would show us these pretty pictures of what their buildings would look like. And, wow, that's that's really top-notch. And ultimately, those buildings were not made nearly as nice as what you saw in the pretty drawings. And the same thing could be said for the what's what became known as Garage. Is it called Garagezilla? Oh. <laughs> over, on, <laughs> over on Fifth and Walnut. Extraordinarily beautiful... Mm. on a on a piece of paper not so much in in uh 3d in real Mm -hmm. life um sort of stands out it does stand out and you know i think the thought was that we're really getting more local than global here but uh you know the thought was you know that there'd be buildings that would spring up that would be four to six stories so it wouldn't be so bald and Mm -hmm. imposing so you know there there's some there were some mistakes made about how how to create a density and i think too much of the density you know because of market forces focused on student housing Uh, and so it's it's not been as diverse in terms of attracting families and attracting single people as it should have been there's a lot of you know most of them became brat brat castles as uh (laughs) as it was memorably coined by sal sal nuzio of uh Eastside Tavern. Um, so it's unfortunate, but you know, I think in the long run, I'd I'd prefer to have that over the kind of sprawl that would have mm-hmm. been necessary to put the, those thousands of units in um, across Boone County. So it's it's a mixed mixed victory. Well, I, you say it's kind of local, but a similar issues are happening in oh, cities yeah. all yeah, across you, the world really yeah and you you can go to any college town in the midwest this is all being mm-hmm. fueled by you know there's a lot of easy money for for some of these uh, very large developers um and they could just say you know it's college town and unlimited demand mm-hmm. so these things have popped up in you know every place from iowa city to ann arbor to champaign Urbana, and we were we were just a little bit slower than than them as <laughs> we're always a few years behind here in Columbia. did you notice uh, that mizzou is uh, gonna allow student housing to access uh, these apartments as part of student housing. Oh, is that right? They just announced that. Well, there was there was very hope, high vacancy rates, and uh, I hope I have yeah, you're probably the right. headline right. But uh, I I thought that well, I'm I'm sure the developers are happy with that news. Uh, yes, I would say they're ecstatic about that because the vacancy rates that they were experiencing in some of these high-rise four-bedroom student apartment buildings was way too high for them to be getting their investment back. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these companies basically put these things up very quickly 
and basically within a few years try to turn it over to somebody else you know there's a 20-year wow. lifespan on some of these buildings so they they basically you know it's sort of a hit and run mm. for most of them mm. um that's maybe a little bit harsh but um they're they're not in, in it for the long haul you know the mm. kind of lifespans that you might see at some of the old timey you know 1920s buildings like the belvedere that's probably not going to be the case for most of the buildings being put up mm -hmm. oftentimes using stick stick construction <laughs> well let's shift back to iowa all right and it's easy enough it's just three hours uh, away elizabeth warren and and is there some uh some secret that you learned about elizabeth warren that um says okay i'm just going to give a whole lot of my time to this campaign yeah i mean i think i i've been a big fan of hers for years and years you know the consumer protection work that she did um way back when um you know she started the agency um i think that took effect in 2008 the consumer protection hmm. bureau what is i should really know the full name of the Con consumer protection bureau um but she she very much has a worldview in line with mine for the most part um and that's unusual presidential candidates tend to have to sand down uh their integrity and their the way that they frame things but she's very much herself um and i think that's that unleashes a lot of energy when she doesn't have to hold her tongue all the time mm -hmm. when she's out there on the trail she's incredibly energetic person um to be able to mm -hmm. see her up close as i did uh this last weekend is really inspiring um you know she across the board whether it's you know um being one of the main sponsors of the Green New Deal to the kind of, you know, just seeing her on the debate and, you know, putting herself out there in terms of like saying stuff like, you know, the United States should never be the first to launch a nuclear attack, mm -hmm. you know, and then immediately getting ganged up on by a lot of other candidates and news mm -hmm. outlets, you know, and, and uh, Dick Cheney's daughter. You know, who are like, well, how many cities would you allow to be destroyed in the U.S. before you defend us? Um, you know, she she has a very like like, you know, it's almost become a cliche, but she has a plan for that. You know, there's even T-shirts that say says, you know, she has a plan for that. You know, she she is extremely proactive and doesn't want us to just simply get Trump out of there. She wants us to take this as an opportunity to push the country forward in a, in a progressive way. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I think we're ready. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, it's very disturbing that 40% of the country thinks he's doing a great job, but upwards of 60% of everyone wants, wants a different direction. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a great opportunity for us to actually take on climate change, take on restoring local economies, take on immigration, take on the the issues that have not really been tackled. You know, we yeah. do need to we do need to get a 50-50 or better in the Senate. You know, not much will move in, until Mitch McConnell's not the majority leader, but mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of room if we can take back the Senate and retain the House and it's not going to be easy, but 
there is a path forward mm-hmm. there and it it starts in states like Iowa I think yeah I think we can we can uh, defeat Joni Ernst in Iowa we can beat Susan Collins in Maine we can get rid of Cory Gardner in Colorado and uh, Tillis in North Carolina there's there's a number of states that are very purple and mm-hmm. who aren't in lockstep with uh, the president and mm-hmm. his agenda mm-hmm so is there a, a way that uh, listeners of our conversation, um, do you have a recommendation not on you know, who to vote for, but what to do to become, in a sense, accountable for living in the world today and looking at our future and uh, how do we how do we proceed wow that's a big one dick um i you know i i am by no means a man uh, do you have an minutes? expert <laughs> at all i'm just trying to put one step in front of another in uh-huh. iowa myself i i think basically i i think my theory is that sort of encoded in your in your question, which is an overwhelming one, is that we were being fed way too much data right now, and we're all plugged in in a way that we feel we feel like we know enough of what's going on, but not nearly enough, and mm-hmm. feel like we're flailing around and aren't really getting the true story of what's happening in the world, mm-hmm. um, and so. There's a, a certain desperation and a certain depression that inevitably finds its way to any thinking, feeling human right now in this mad, mad time. So I, I guess for me, I can only speak for myself, yeah. that I felt like in order to combat that within myself, that I needed to do something simple, um, which was to... Pick, pick a candidate who I could feel good about um, and just start in a very humble way to put my body in motion and mm-hmm. to do my part. And so for me, I'm not a vastly theoretical kind of thinker. I'm very, a little more prosaic and prag- pragmatic. And so I... For me, I need to just be in motion and then sort of tweak, <laughs> tweak my plan as I go. Yeah. Other other folks who I know need to be a little more organized about it and <laughs> to have uh, you know an outline plan. So I guess it just mileage varies. You know, I mean, there's some moments that I feel really ecstatic. You know, being a volunteer for Elizabeth Warren when I'm having a great conversation in some small town and getting into the issues of the day and then there's some moments that are like really disheartening you know you, mm-hmm. you'll knock on some doors in some town like newton iowa and you'll you know there'll be a street or two where you know the folks that are at the door they're like I've, i'm not following this at all um i don't know who's running and you know i i don't know and i you know in some cases i don't care you know there's like a real mm-hmm. disenfranchisement um that's happening and um you know so that's tough you know when you when you see that level of disengagement 
so so i guess going back to your question like how how does one engage or involve oneself in in a change that we that many mm-hmm. of us probably listening to this program feel is needed you know i think it it clearly comes down to like what what can get you up in the morning and excited mm-hmm. um i i'd actually like contemplated like hmm do i want to um you know move to Kentucky and um, <laughs> you know try to try to get Mitch McConnell out of there by mm-hmm. um, going door to door for Amy McGrath who's a bit you know she's just a, a bit more middle of the road or um, forget it Air Force veteran and so yeah ultimately for me personally even though I, I see the efficacy of like going directly at Mitch McConnell in that way I was just like it's going to be a little bit harder for me to go to doors and to feel passionate about it and to want mm-hmm. to know more and more and more as I do with Elizabeth Warren. You know, I I can go to ElizabethWarren.com and read about all of her policies and see the kind of thinking that's gone into each of these very detailed plans and get very inspired. But, you know, I mean, outside of electoral politics, I mean, there's just a million ways that you can engage your passion and your excitement or to combat your depression or cynicism mm-hmm. or skepticism. And, you know, there's the way that I look at it, there's literally a million reasons why people should be cynical or skeptical right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all around you. And, you know, I think, you know, there's enough, enough events happen, you know, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein or, you know, what's happening in Hong Kong or in Kashmir for people to feel like, mm. I'm not getting the whole story here. Mm-hmm. Um, and to feel like the political system is truly broken because of the influence of money, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I, my theory is that it's not for us to, like, uh, we, it's, it's a disservice to the world, to ourselves and to the world and to our descendants to to look at look at things in that sort of a disheartened way so i i try to keep that at bay and try to just do do my best to to you know feel like there there is room for change to happen and mm-hmm. you know my my theory is that this is not all linear i mean in in the in the negative sense, no one would have predict, predicted the last president to be elected. Mm-hmm. And I think um, no one truly can see what's possible in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of room to imagine uh, at this moment, despite a lot of evidence that uh, we could move this country in a really positive way. So that's that's where mm-hmm. I'm at right now. But, you know, I'd lie, lie to you to say that every morning I you know, jump out of bed and, and feel like, uh, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, a clear path to victory. (laughs) Your family supports you. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm very lucky, you know, Polina has been extremely supportive. I mean, she's, she's definitely a community, community oriented person and always has been, you know, she's, she's lived in communal households, you know, and, Providence, Rhode Island, and been part of a larger group of artists and filmmakers. And, you know, she, 
she sees the limitations of you know uh us staring at our navels and <laughs> and just working on our own our own finances and our own household <clears throat> that's not enough for her so you know she's she's does her own great stuff she started a uh an outdoor school called Wild Folk. Yes, I get their mailings. All right, yeah, wildfolk.org. She does, you know, it's a three-day-a-week school for kids and it also, you know, does some workshops and, and other things. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I'm very lucky in that way. And, and you know, my kids, I have one grown-up kid who's 20, 26, Sola, who, you know, got the brunt of... Uh, <laughs> me being distracted with with starting ragtag and true false and pretty used to me being a distracted dad and the two the two younger kids Leo and Iko or 10 and 7 um you know they're they've been used to me you know being checked out for a few months every year with with the film festival mm-hmm. you know between around November and March mm-hmm. uh you know they won't see too much of me so <laughs> I've trained them well to not expect much, uh, but yeah, yeah, uh, they've been they've been very supportive. Well, and your ragtag and true false family, and they're kind of family too, and they are oh, even yeah, supportive they, of your uh, yeah yeah. I mean, shift. I think there's there's really good management in place, and uh, you know, Jeremy and Camelia and Barbie and and everybody else who works um, at the Ragtag Film Society, uh, you know, pretty much have like figured out a lot of stuff that um has brought it to a high another level you know it used to be david wilson and me in the early years with the festival you know we're doing everything from setting up risers at the tiger ballroom to make it into the forest theater to Hmm. you know booking travel but now everybody else you know there's many more people um who have specialized jobs and can do it at a much much higher level so uh we became we became generalists uh, over time, and uh, it was a good, mostly a good trend. Yeah. Yeah. So it 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 all is kind of coming together for you to. I mean, I be think that's an to... overstatement of everything coming together. But yes, there there are people who who have taken the baton and are doing it with a lot of grace and intelligence. Um, but you know, it's it's a working, it's always a, a work in progress. You know, I I, I don't think. That a, being a, a nonprofit arts organization, you ever you know are on top of the mountain <laughs> in a in a lawn chair looking down and saying, oh, we we definitely have it all figured out. You know, I think, you know, it it needs to figure out how to sustain itself through a, a more diverse, you know, income base. You know, which will include you know more private donors. It's leaned very very hard over the years on pass sales and ticket sales, which has mm-hmm. been great. You know, it's like there's just like an extraordinary amount of support that way but you know to take it to the next level and beyond uh it has to go beyond past sales and and sponsorship to tapping more more private donors so you know i think i think we should see see the festival going to great great heights over the next 10 years um as that gets developed but you know it's it's not it's not an easy path, but it, it, yeah. it's going to happen. Well, you never take the easy path, it seems. Yeah, so, uh, yeah we got to, you know, it's an Alzheimer's prevention <laughs> plan to shake things up every once in a while and uh, test myself 
and uh, get myself into unfamiliar territory. Gotta gotta train the brain to not coast at at any time. Cool. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dick. Great to have you. Yeah, it's been fun to talk. That is Paul Sturtz from Columbia, and we're going to take, well, I guess it's time to say adieu for the day. So uh, I'll close with my remember, uh, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care and talk to you soon.